she's barbecuing herself via dragon, which is not, you know, an option available to any pregnant women. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Layla Darabi. And I'm Lori Edelman. This episode, we watched House of the Dragon and asked Alison Herman, in the Seven Kingdoms, why is womanhood such an ordeal? Oof, such an ordeal. Lori, are you binging or cringing? I am simultaneously cringing the fact that Flatbush Misdemeanors has been canceled. This is an early binge for me. I really think the show is hilarious as a New Yorker. They really nail so much. And it's just unique and funny. It doesn't really fit into any one specific taste or genre, which I love. They decided not to return them for a season three. So that's my cringe. I'm really sad about that. But instead, and to ease my woes, I am binging the new season of Rami. Rami continuously delivers really interesting TV. And so far, this new season is no exception. What about you, Layla? Are you binging or cringing this week? I am binging slowly. My dad comes over for dinner at least once a week. He's got bad circulation and his number one prescription is to walk. So I make him walk to my house at least once a week. It's two miles. It's a real accomplishment for him. And uh, recently, my husband, Chris, and I have tried to turn him on to the newsroom, which is a show I didn't actually like that much the first time around. It's Aaron Sorkin. It's very cringy. And I think when it first came out, it was too close. You know, I think shows that attempt to do recent history often fail. But what I do love is watching it right now in these times with my doom scrolling husband, who's often really pessimistic about the state of the world. And my father, who is obsessively following on social media, what's happening in Iran. It is very escapist to watch these extremely principled journalists trying to make the newsroom, the world's court and the broadcast anchor the lawyer for both sides. And I cringe less on second viewing at all the Sorkin-y monologues. I kind of enjoy the soapiness, but also the idea that we don't need two sides journalism. It's a farce. Absolutely. Love just good old fashioned storytelling. It's really good escapism. And keep walking, dad. That's great. <laughs> I'm really excited for today's episode because I think that we don't want to be accusatory, sometimes lean on the serious side. And I was really excited to do today's show, House of the Dragon, because I know so many people watching it. It's on right now. And although it deals with a lot of politics, they're so ancient, it doesn't feel like homework to watch this show. <laughs> Agreed. And it was also really refreshing to break our format just a tiny bit, not a ton, because the person that we spoke to is definitely an expert. She happens to be also a television expert in addition to having really good ideas about feminism and sex and sexuality. Yes, we spoke to TV critic Allison Herman, whose work in The Ringer we really enjoyed. She wrote a great piece with the incredible title, Womanhood is War in House of the Dragon. And in that piece, she coins many terms, including the term which is naming this episode, the feminine ordeal. And so we sought Allison out. Absolutely. And it was fascinating to hear her perspective also just as a fan of the universe. So she mentioned that she's read all of the books. She has obviously watched the whole show and she watches a lot of TV. So she brought a lot of perspectives and wears a lot of hats. And we were very happy to speak with her about everything from the difficulties of 
pregnancy and childbirth to masturbating out of a window. Without further ado, here's our episode on House of the Dragon with Allison Herman. Allison, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Cringe Watchers. Thank you so much for having me. We were very excited to have you because we read your piece and thought that you were the perfect person to dive into what you call the feminine ordeal. Yes, it's a very dun, dun, um, dun. sexy name for an unsexy, unpleasant thing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll add a noise to that. So every time we say feminine ordeal, we'll be like, Allison, are you? do you follow this regularly? The show? Yeah, yeah. I actually... Just got an email that I'm getting a screener for the penultimate episode tomorrow. So I'm very excited. (gasps) But I read the books that became Game of Thrones when I was like 13. It's been a very formative story in my life. So when the prequel came around, I was, I did not have to be told twice that I could have another ticket back to Westeros. That's hardcore. That's amazing. I should start and say this is kind of a fun episode because it jumps forward in time 10 years. So there's a lot of swapping out of actors, which we can get into. But we start with the princess. How do you say her name? Rhaenyra? Rhaenyra? You nailed it. Rhaenyra. Princess Rhaenyra is in the throes of childbirth, screaming, Um, push. <laughs> She pushes out a baby and then she is immediately summoned by the queen, her childhood best friend, now married to her dad, to show her baby uh, and present it. And uh, we're, I think, meant to understand that she's married to a black man. It is widely understood that her lover is the father of her children and her husband prefers the company of men. And so she has to sort of pull herself together and run over and present her baby to have it, I guess, color checked. A boy. I just had. Yes. Hold on. Where are you going? She wants to see him. Now? Coming with you? I should hope so. Let me take him. I should get no such satisfaction from him. Just take my arm, at the least. Was it terribly painful? It's gnarly in so many ways. This show, I would say, from the very first episode, having just binged it all, is deep into childbirth. And uh, the first thing I ever read about this show was the very graphic C-section scene in the first episode. But we wanted to start with the childbirth. And you cited, Allison, in your piece, recapping some of the feminine ordeals in this show, that Rhaenyra's mother had once warned her that the childbed is our battlefield. So what do you make of all of this graphic portrayal of childbirth in the show? Is this a feminist move? I think that gets into this question of depiction versus endorsement when it comes to violence against or that just happens to women that has been a part of the Game of Thrones discourse since Game of Thrones was on the air. I mean, we're going on like year 10 of this discussion. So I think there's honestly grounds for opinions on both sides. So in Game of Thrones, most of this discussion centered around rape and sexual assault and how they were presented on screen. And I think even then you could argue it's gratuitous, it is unnecessary, we get the message, it's happened so frequently it's almost casual, etc. And then on the other side of that debate you have, well, the show does cultivate female characters who have rich and complex relationships that are not entirely a product of the terrible things that have happened to them. And the thing that distinguishes this world that George R. R. Martin created from other kinds of fantasy is that it is 
very bleak and realistic about the kinds of things that happen when you have a big continental war. And that also, I think, importantly applies not just to the characters we spend the most time with, who tend to be noble and wealthier and powerful. In the books especially, one of the things I really liked when I was reading them is that it emphasizes that armies on both sides, no matter whether we have been taught to empathize with their bosses, commit war crimes. They commit casual rape and pillaging all the time. And that was never definitively resolved over the course of Game of Thrones. I think the showrunners over the run of the show moved away from sexual assault as a storytelling device, but it certainly continued through to the end as a theme of the show. And then in House of the Dragon, it's almost like a one-to-one substitute. So instead of having sexual assault be the primary form of violence against women that we observe, it is childbirth, which is also something that they are functionally forced to endure because it's what is expected of them to prove their value in society. And again, I think you have this really interesting dynamic where on the one hand, I really appreciate how graphic they are about the realities of birth, because I think that is frankly something that is still not understood or accepted on a cultural level. And on the other hand, you could argue it repeats that so many times and is so blunt about it that it pushes past the point of our understanding or empathizing with the characters and gets into gratuitous territory. So it's a little ambiguous where you end up in the end, but it is interesting to me how it so directly transplants from sexual assault to childbirth from one show to the next. Totally. It makes you wonder what feminist blogs the showrunners are reading, right? And actually, this episode director and co-showrunner of the whole show, Miguel Sapochnik, told The Hollywood Reporter, quote, we felt that it was an interesting way to explore the fact that for a woman in medieval times, giving birth was violence. It's as dangerous as it gets. You have a 50-50 chance of making it. Many women didn't. And if given the choice, the father would choose the child over the mother as a cesarean would kill you. So we actually see that specific scenario displayed more than one time. (laughs) I also have seen that show up like in other shows like that showed up in Bridgerton recently in their most recent season, like the deadly C-section. It also kind of makes me wonder if they're trying to appeal to like the mommy blogger a little bit because there's like an anti-C-section vibe going on in that community. So I think you're so right, Allison, that there's this substitute of like the violence of sexual assault for the violence of childbirth and ostensibly a claim that this is like a more feminist way to follow a woman character, but one that's like also still realistic and like real and gritty. Yeah, it's interesting because I often think of the dangers of childbirth as something that people don't understand and like working in abortion rights when people try to make abortion out to be a really dangerous procedure when in fact, like in modern times, it's incredibly safe. It's often safer than carrying through and delivering even today. It's an interesting portrayal of the violence of bringing life into this world. It's true. And I'm not sure that I saw this written about a lot and it didn't happen in this episode, but we do get an abortion tea in this show. I'm curious, Alison, if you saw that rock, the TV writer community world, or if that got as much attention as it, I feel it should have in the repro community. Well, I think it's interesting in that it is almost the inverse of how it treats childbirth. Like childbirth, it makes such a point of being like, this is a big deal. Like, look how painful it is to go through. Look how important it is to their status in society. And I think with um, moon tea, as it's called within the show and abortion, the point is almost 
how not a big deal it is. It's like, this is a thing that is accepted and understood and almost not quite casual, but it's just something that people will very quickly go to as a solution to their problems. And I think it's so astute to link this to abortion rights because that was something I was thinking about in the scene where you follow Rhaenyra in real time as she's forced to like go straight from giving birth to walking through a castle. And then later you see her in a meeting where her breasts start leaking. And I think when we are talking about abortion in a national discourse, I think something that is really appalling to advocates for women's choice or even just women in general, if you have gone through pregnancy or know someone who has, how shockingly casual so-called pro-life people will be about carrying a pregnancy to term. And like, it's just, oh, you're just going to sit there for nine months and then you're going to pop by the hospital. And like, why wouldn't you just accept that instead of, you know, what they see as taking a life? And that's so not what it looks like or how it works. And I think there's inherently value in showing that birth is an incredibly harrowing physical process. It leaves you completely depleted and unable to walk or, you know, conduct yourself normally for weeks afterwards. It's not just a casual thing that you can do and then go about your life. And so I do think there is value in specifically that opening scene to episode six. Absolutely. And actually, let's talk about the breast leakage, because I think that was a really striking moment. It was important moment in the episode when there's this small kind of inner circle council meeting happening. So you have Raniera, you have Queen Allison, you have the king, they're all together meeting. And Raniera actually is stepping into her power as a female leader, as a princess, proposing that her son marry Allison's daughter to close the rift in their families. There's been a lot of growing tension between them. The name of the episode is The Princess and the Queen. We're sort of following this trajectory of their friendship into potential you know, nemeses and excited to see where the show goes with that. But then at the end of her speech, Allison points to Rhaenyra's dress being wet where she's leaking breast milk. And it's sort of this moment where the wind gets knocked out of her sails a little bit. Like Allison is also sort of implying and saying, I'm not impressed by your kind of show of feminist solidarity here and your offer for allyship. So I'm just curious, Allison, like, do you feel like this moment was uh, trying to tell us something about how like female leadership is getting set up in the show or how, you know, Raniara keeps kind of trying to transcend the boundaries of her gender and kind of keeps getting shot down? Or what did you make of that moment? Yeah, I mean, the question of whether women can be accepted as leaders is kind of the defining conflict of the show. Like the opening scene has Rhaenyra's father Viserys be chosen over his cousin Renice in what was kind of understood in the world of the show to be like a precedent setting against women inheriting power. And then I think this is something I end up being of two minds about how the show approaches, because I think sometimes it can be very simplistic of like, men say women can't lead and actually women can. And then sometimes I think it complicates that a little bit and starts thinking about the mechanics of like what that looks like or what it means for women to be on opposing sides of a political conflict and not just united in solidarity on one side against men. And I thought this scene kind of fell into the latter camp. I really enjoyed it. 
because you see, first of all, it's it's Rhaenyra versus Alicent, and there are men in the room, but they're kind of irrelevant, which is always fun. I think it is a more interesting consideration of just like what the mechanics of a woman being in power looks like beyond just the fact that, you know, men will make sexist jokes, which you see happen to Rhaenyra when she's being courted by a suitor a few episodes prior. And it's like, no, like if a woman is ruling and she's still expected to have children, that means she's going to have to go into big meetings immediately postpartum and people are going to judge her for just having her body do its thing. And people are going to think one of those occupations, having children is fundamentally at odds with the other, which is leading and making decisions. And that's a moment where those two of those things come directly into conflict with each other. So I enjoyed that scene and I hope we see more like it in the future. It reminded me so much of some of the news coverage of European women parliamentarians bringing their babies to session and uh, just women in leadership these days bringing babies and breastfeeding publicly. It was ahead of its time. One of the things that I found frustrating about this episode is that or the trajectory of Alicent, gotta land that T since we're talking to Alison, <laughs> is that she's starting to seem more and more purely evil. And I think less and less nuanced. And I think in the beginning, to me, what was interesting about her character was the betrayal slash obligation of the childhood best friend. You couldn't tell if she was power hungry. She was following her father's orders. But now she just seems kind of power hungry and really obsessed with her own children succeeding. And what do you both think? I feel as though both Game of Thrones and House of Dragons has a thing where they, when women are evil, they get very one-dimensional. Yeah, I think I actually really enjoy what Olivia Cook is doing with this role. I definitely find her more bitter and jaded than her younger counterpart, but I think that's totally in keeping with this character. And I think what you're seeing is like the seed of the resentment is I see myself as good and my friend did something I see as bad, which is have sex out of wedlock and then eventually children. And then now what you're seeing is someone who's been stewing in that for 10 years and just totally convinced that her friend is wrong and she's right. And I interpret what she wants to do as less just advocating for her children out of pure power's sake, which I think is more what her father is doing. And more just as a mother, I want to protect my children and the way she frames it. And I I do think this is supposed to be genuinely how she sees it is that she believes if Rhaenyra ascends the throne, her kids who are essentially Rhaenyra's younger half brothers and therefore would potentially be her rivals in the line of succession could lose their lives. And I think what you're supposed to see her as is someone who has internalized those stakes and is doing what she thinks she needs to do. So I I do think she's not a one-dimensional villain in the vein of a Cersei Lannister, who I frankly, like, I love, but I don't think we're getting that same, like, Lena Headey scenery chewing (laughs) from Olivia Cook just yet. But yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I do think she's giving a very different performance than Emily Carey, who plays her younger counterpart, for sure. I think that's right. And one of the just really small moments in this episode that I really appreciated, I think helped speak to the character of Queen Alicent was the 
window masturbation scene where her eldest son, who ostensibly would be the heir if, you know, Rhaenyra's uh, bastard children, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to call them that, weren't existing, is just openly masturbating into a window for unclear reasons. And I don't know that that had too much of a plot reason to be there. I just thought it was hilarious. It was possibly a way to show that like, the boy who everyone knows in their bones should be king is still just a boy. And we're all kind of arguing over these tiny teenagers who are also horny, even if it's in a different world. But I just thought that like, that was a fun detail. I didn't want to, I didn't want us to skip over. I loved the like intra HBO echoes you get there where it's kind of a beat for beat reprise of a similar scene in succession where Roman I was just going to say it's giving Roman Roy. (laughs) Oh, Jerry. (laughs) There's a moment in industry this year where someone says that another character looks like Kendall Roy. So I feel like they're just creating this like interconnected universe of shows that are responsible to each other. <laughs> I love it. It's like when sitcoms have crossovers. I would love to see Roman Roy in this era, but I don't want us to discuss this episode without discussing the other complex childbirth scene, which I think might have been the coup de grace of visuals involving both dragons and pregnancy in the show. But at the end of the episode, or towards the end, we see that Damon, now married to Lena Valerian, who is the same little girl who Renera's father passed up to marry Allison. She's now in her 20s. She's very pregnant. She's having a complicated birth, so much so that she recognizes that Damon's going to have to decide whether to cut her open to save the baby or kill her. And, that, and she's in that same scenario that you were describing, Lori. So she goes and she shouts Dracaris at her dragon and gets herself self-immolated, if that's a verb. It's maybe the most Game of Thrones House of Dragons scene I've ever seen. <laughs> It's so on the nose, but I enjoyed it. I love the way you summarized it as part of the feminine ordeal, Allison. Do you think that we're meant to think that she's saving her husband from the decision or that she knows she wouldn't be the choice? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think because her two children are both girls, I think they're certainly part of that. I do think maybe this is a good time to reference what I think is one of the show's serious flaws, which is that it's hard to make that decision for me because we've spent so little time a with her character to begin with and b on her relationship to Damon because their relationship is essentially like they have two kids and then she dies and that is a function of how much ground the show needs to cover in the lead up to the civil war and the way they've decided to do it which is by having massive time jumps between every single episode And not just, you know, this episode is preceded by a 10-year time jump, so they change out a lot of cast members. But I think the shortest between episodes is six months, and it's usually multiple years. And so I find it hard to evaluate that scene based on character, which is maybe why I found it the most potentially gratuitous of the three childbirths, possibly also because it's the least realistic. She's barbecuing herself via dragon, which is not, you know, an option available to any pregnant women in the real world. I also think I ought to note that when I first watched this episode, which I did rewatch both before our conversation and before I wrote about it, the special effects were not completed. (laughs) So it really sapped the emotional impact to just have like a basically a blank screen and be like TBD. (laughs) They're reacting to nothing. (laughs) But yes, I think Matt Smith did a wonderful job 
responding to something that was essentially like probably a tennis ball on a pogo stick at that point. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I will say I also found this to be really unrealistic. And I can't prove this. So that's my big disclaimer on this theory. But based on the way that race is treated in this show, which is something that has managed to both, by the way, piss off racists and people who are who seem to be like defending race based casting. I feel like this was an idea that was kind of half baked that was like, hey, we're making a show about lots of gnarly childbirth. And you know who really has it rough when it comes to childbirth, black women. And we want to make a statement that's like relevant today. And we are going to have a black woman self-immolate in relation to a childbirth scene because that's going to really light up the comments. And I feel like it was something that felt very kind of empty to me from the character standpoint, to your point, Allison, but I could see how in a writer's room, it felt really exciting. And from like the CGI perspective, they were like, yeah, we can make that work. But it really is kind of one of those instances where the Black woman herself disappears in all that like symbolism and imagery. And so that was kind of my read. Again, can't prove it. Don't come for me. I don't know what was in their minds. Wait, to clarify, you're saying that the writer's room saw themselves as woke by giving the Black character this most complicated of the complicated pregnancies. Basically, this Black woman is making a statement like, because self-immolation is like a protest sign, right? So she's choosing to kind of protest the state of childbirth for her and potentially other women in her situation. I don't know. I feel like that makes more sense to me than what was just shown on the screen. Why would you want a really painful death when you're in a lot of pain? I'm just not sure that that follows for me. Yeah, I think it's kind of one of the pitfalls of race-blind casting, which is what they've essentially done, where they are casting Black actors in important roles, which I think they think of as being important, and it is an improvement on how fantasy casting has worked in the past. But they're also not treating race as we understand it like a meaningful factor or quantity in Westeros. Although they do, like race does exist. Like the Dothraki are real. There are people in other places that look different from people in Westeros. But weirdly, I thought the most effective use of casting Black actors was in Rhaenyra's kids, very obviously not being her husband's kids. And... I thought, you know, in the books, it's also said, like, they look a lot more like this night Harwin Strong than her husband, but nothing really drives it home as much as, like, her husband literally is a different skin color from her children, which doesn't really have anything to do with, like, the humanity of the Black characters. It's just about how it affects the larger plot of the show. So I think... There's room for both colorblind and color conscious casting, but there's just pitfalls to both approaches, I think. Oh my gosh, totally agree. And also speaking as a black woman, my actual biggest complaint about this show is that we do not see the sex. Where is the sex between Rhaenyra and her hot ass lover? All of a sudden we just fast forward, it's a new actress and you have a new hot lover and we never saw the sex, but we have to see everyone else like in every pleasure brothel across Westeros fucking, that was a fail for me as a Black woman, as a woman with a heartbeat. (laughs) 
it reminded me of the Hunger Games, where it's not race blind, because they are assigning a race to a whole people, or at least to a family within this show. It's not like you could be of any race and be cast as one of the children of one of the black actors. They're definitely casting by skin tone, but they're not having it assigned to power or racism in the way that we understand it in modern times. I don't know about you guys, but when the king goes into his different colored stallion analogy, I was holding my breath. (laughs) Yeah, that got dicey. (laughs) I think he landed the plane, but... It's like the hierarchy for genetic traits is like hair color, then skin tone, than everything else. Like, there's no kind of consistent logic, but a kind of careful liberalism. The last of the moments we wanted to get your take on, Allison, is at the very end where Rhaenyra goes to her husband and basically says, that's it, we're leaving. I know I thought I had to stay around to sort of keep Alicent in check and make sure that my inheritance was upheld, but we're better off going off, starting our own lives. She's been really bitter toward her husband the whole time, in part because he didn't have to experience the painful childbirth that she did. He's not experiencing any of the consequences of their arrangement that she is. But then as a sort of nice gesture at the end, she says, but you can bring your lover. What is your take on how the gay characters in this show have been portrayed? I know there's been a lot written about the first overtly queer character being presented and then promptly killed off. But in this episode, it's so interesting to see the double standard of how a woman's infidelity and a man's infidelity are treated. Well, I do think the relationship between Rhaenyra and her husband actually gets the chance to be developed over multiple episodes, which is not the case of Rhaenyra and her lover, which I totally agree. I think it's really jarring to be like, so we've moved forward 10 years. Also, she is a lover. Also, that lover is the mother or the father of her children, which means that he's much more than a lover. Also, he's dead. And that's like in the space of 45 minutes. And you're just like, what? And I think with Rhaenyra and her husband, Lenor, you actually get her, not in this episode, but in subsequent episodes, explaining to him her point of view. And also before they get married, she says, like, I know you're gay. We're going to have this arrangement where we do what we need to do. And then we do what whatever we want to do on the side. And I think the tragedy is like they're not even able to follow through on that end of the deal. And then that has terrible consequences. But I do actually think we get a little more of Lenor's perspective on what it means to be queer in Westeros in a way where the precedent in Game of Thrones is really the relationship between Renly Baratheon and Loras Tyrell, which is just kind of a like, well, everyone knows about it and Loras is sad when Renly dies, but you don't really get any interiority of those characters because they're not super important. So I actually do think the way this show handles Lenor and Rhaenyra's dynamic of like mutual respect and support and acknowledgement and partnership that's not like strictly romantic and them trying to carve out this niche for themselves that's not conventional and ultimately failing like actually enhances the emotion and tragedy of the show in a way that I do think is effective. And I totally empathize with those who don't like seeing queer characters get beaten for being queer. But again, I think it is kind of part of the Game of Thrones value proposition where like, I think at the very least, you can say it is equal opportunity in terms of the kinds of characters that suffer terrible, ugly deaths on screen. I think that's right. I certainly did not anticipate having a new, horrible, 
fear, which is getting eaten alive by crabs just from watching this show. So thanks for that, House of Dragon. But I think what you're talking about, Allison, is really like allyship in the sense that how Rhaenyra is like trying to show up for her husband on his terms and like asking him to do the same. And I see that as a theme throughout this show. Like, yes, there's this idea of, okay, the world is very brutal. The world is very violent. It's quite patriarchal. You know, lineage is patriarchal. But to get us bought into the characters, we also have to see them kind of trying to navigate those things according to a moral code that is somewhat aligned to our own. And so that's why I think we get characters like the king, who consistently is like kind of showing up as this male feminist ally in support of his daughter, even when all of his advisors are telling him not to, he's like, no, I'm going to, you know, keep sticking to my daughter as my heir, even if I have a son born. He, as we mentioned already, sends her the special moon tea after um, she is seen and understood to have essentially had sex with multiple people in the same night. The timing on that's a little bit unclear, possibly one being her uncle and another one being her first lover. And so he sort of looks the other way around that. He looks the way other way around her second lover and the whole issue with her children not being the same race as their alleged, as their ostensible father. So he's really kind of showing up for her. I just wonder if you think that allyship is something that's possible or are we, is it all going to crumble by the end of this season? Are we going to kind of come to hate this character as well? Or do you think he's being held up as a little bit of a feminist icon in this show? Well, I think the interesting and complicated thing about Viserys' character is he's actually like not really supporting Rhaenyra in a way that is in the long game going to be in her best interest. Like what he's ultimately doing is he's satisfying his own need for lack of conflict and having a good relationship for his daughter and kind of setting her up to fail, just completely denying what is literally in front of his face assuaging conflict. I have a friend on Twitter who was like, I can wave my magic wand and avert the war and therefore this entire show. Like what you probably should have done is the second he had his son be like, I know this is tough, but like the sun's the air now. And instead he is affirming her and affirming her and affirming her, but not in a way that gives her broader support, not in a way that convinces people that she's worthy of their support and just ensuring that this is all going to end in a much more ugly and violent way than it necessarily needed to. And yet, I think Patty Considine's performance is so amazing because you can see that he's doing it out of well-intentioned, naive love. And I really like when the show kind of pushes beyond the easy nuance of who's good and who's bad and that he's, you know, good, but also incompetent. And maybe it would have been better if he were a little harsher and that would have made him a better king, but not necessarily a better father. It's just interesting to watch and creates that tension that makes for good TV, I think. Ooh, love that nuance. What is TV Twitter saying about all the incest in this show? I feel like they're really hitting us over the head with it. They've gone beyond twins fucking to just marrying off siblings overtly. Yeah. Why are they trying to make incest a thing? Weirdly steamy. It's not cool. 
Well, they're very casual about it. Like, at least in Game of Thrones, it was supposed to be, like, shocking and taboo that Cersei and Jaime were having sex. Worth murdering over to keep yes. a secret. Yes, and we're told that, like, the Targaryens practice ritual incest, but we're mostly not seeing that. And then the two, the only two Targaryens we meet in the show, Viserys and Daenerys, you're not supposed to be rooting for them to be together at all. And... I do think it is difficult for the show to go into a reality where incest is totally normalized. Like there are siblings that are married to each other. Rhaenyra is the product of two siblings who are married to each other. And there are relationships that are supposed to be taboo for reasons that are not incest, like Rhaenyra and her uncle Damon. It's supposed to be bad that they maybe had sex because she's not married, not because he's her uncle. <laughs> and I think I kind of applaud the show for just being so like unapologetic about that. But it's also hard to take as a viewer who lives in the real world. And again, I just think it's like yet another thing that gets smoothed over in the time jumps where you kind of wish you had more time to give texture and context to those relationships. And instead it's like, well, you're going to marry your sister. And then like two episodes later, you have kids with your sibling. Or like when they suggest Rhaenyra should marry her little brother and it's not supposed to be, oh, that's gross because he's her brother. It's like, oh, he's a baby. So it's like weird to talk about marrying him off. But like, are those really equal? Maybe not. I almost have more respect for those uh, conversations because they're not trying to make it steamy. If you're being very blunt about the fact that marriage is a transaction and a power proposition, then sure, marry off all the children, all these betrothed and you don't have to bed them till later. Those relationships ring more true to me. It's the isn't your uncle hot part that I get a little squeamish about, even from the Game of Thrones days when the with the Jon Snow Daenerys reveal. She's his aunt or that was incest somehow. Well, I think as Lori pointed out, because the show has relatively little hot sex otherwise, I was like, okay, well, someone has chemistry. Like, I'll go for that. I mean, also, I love Matt Smith, so I like seeing that. And I actually haven't really seen this discussed, but I do think it's interesting that the adult versions of those characters who actually get married later on appear to have a lot less like sexual and romantic chemistry. And it's almost like they've aged from like lusty, youthful indiscretions to like, you know what, like we got to stick together. So like, let's just do this. Yeah, I think probably the cringiest part for me was the dynamic of like Damon teaching Raniera. Like I think there was a moment where he kind of started teaching her and then when she asserted herself he walked away and was like that's not as hot i'm kind of reading into that scene in the pleasure den but it could have been a comment on grooming again really projecting a lot of feminist energy on a text that may not deserve <laughs> it here but she did then seem to immediately bring those lessons to like a lover that she is not related to. And I think that's maybe the saving grace or something. I just want to hope they were trying to send a message around and maybe then the adult versions with that dynamic not existing. I think the best we can hope for. Fast Bass is an authentic, African-inspired packaged goods food brand that strives to bring the flavors and the cultures of the continent to consumers. Think craft foods in scope, but Patagonia in culture and impact. To learn more about the Bass Bass story and their products, visit BassBassSauce.com. 
That's B-A-S-B-A-A-S sauce.com. I think it might be time for our cringe fire round. Are you ready yes. for the rapid fire? I was born ready. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> what is another show that you're binging right now? I just finished the first season of Mo on Netflix and I really enjoyed it. So good. What is something that you're finding very cringy at the moment? I wish I had a more exciting or even culture-related answer for this, but the president of the Los Angeles City Council and several other politicians just got implicated in a horrible racism scandal that included all kinds of ugly remarks. So I would be lying if I gave any answer other than that. (laughs) I was about to say that's a good answer. It's an appropriate answer. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see portrayed or better portrayed in culture? I think it's kind of the hardest one to get right. So I understand why it's not. But I would just love real chemistry and sexiness, not even necessarily sex to be like, more thoughtfully considered in casting and filming decisions. Like Fleabag season two is the sexiest thing I've ever seen. There's maybe one sex scene and it's like not actually the sexy part. So more like that. Yes. Yes, please. All the hot priests. (laughs) What is a favorite scene depicting sex or sexuality in TV, film, or literature? I really miss early True Blood and how totally all out and insane all of those sex scenes were and kind of campy, but also legitimately hot. Like, Alan Ball really had it together. So I miss it. Bring it back, etc. Nice. I will sign that petition. Allison, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you so much to our guest this week, Allison Herman. You can learn more about her work on Twitter at aherman2006. That's A-H-E-R-M-A-N 2006. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art, and D.L. Dallas Engram created our original theme song. And our new theme song and interstitial music was created by Amy Klein of AK and the Hallucinations. You can find Amy on Spotify and D.L. on SoundCloud. As always, thank you for cringe watching with us. And don't forget, tell a friend about the podcast. 